Well, it is my distinct joy right now to ask you to do something that I have never asked you to do as a congregation before. And that would be to please turn in your Bibles to the book of Haggai. I'll give you some time to get there. He's lodged between Zephaniah and Zechariah. If you'd simply like to cut to the chase in one of the red Bibles in the seats, this morning's sermon text can be found on page 791. 791 in those red Bibles. Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we'll be giving special attention to verse 7. In fact, while you're turning there, I'll I'll remind us that this is week 4 in our annual Advent sermon series. It's entitled, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, an Advent study of Messianic prophecy in the Old and New Testament. Three weeks ago, we focused on Christ as the rod and root of Jesse, for Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah. Two weeks ago, we considered Christ as the key of David, for Jesus is the only way to God. Last week, we pondered the truth that Christ is the day spring, for Jesus is the light of the world. This morning, we'll meditate together on what is commonly serves as the final verse in this great historic hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, this ancient sacred song where Jesus is addressed as the desire of nations. As we've done each week this Advent, I'll, I'll sing the verse, and you're encouraged to join me when we reach the chorus. If you know the verse, you're welcome to sing the verse as well. O come, desire of nations, bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou our sad division cease And be thyself our King of peace. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. Shall come to thee, O Israel. Perhaps you're familiar with the automobile bumper sticker that reads, coexist. Coexist. It's commonly found written with white letters on a blue background. Each of the seven letters on the bumper sticker represent seven different religious worldviews. They are together a perfect, perfect summation of the spirit of our age with reference to matters of religious pluralism. So from left to right, we see the symbols of Islam, then Buddhism, then scientific naturalism, there's an E equals MC squared, Judaism, paganism, Wicca, and then patiently waiting at the back of the line is a T in the familiar shape of a cross. The final letter in coexist. I think it would be difficult to think of a more widely 
embraced popular philosophy than this one. Our age is one that prizes and praises tolerance. But this tolerance, mind you, is a new tolerance. It's not the old tolerance. In his masterful book, The Intolerance of Tolerance, author D.A. Carson writes that tolerance used to mean that we accept the existence of different views. It now means, however, the acceptance of different views. Carson continues, this shift from accepting the existence of different views to the acceptance of different views is minor in form, but massive in substance. That's right. I've heard Carson explain it this way over the years. The the old tolerance used to say, you're wrong, but I will defend to my death your right to be wrong. That's the old tolerance. The new tolerance, though, can't even say you're wrong. The coexist bumper sticker looks like the old tolerance, but upon further reflection, as they say in the NFL, upon further review, it's not the old tolerance. It's the new. Would that the bumper sticker were truly preaching coexistence, I assure you it's not. Rather, it's preaching the relativizing and the analogizing, the flattening of distinctions among religions. And though the author of the final verse of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel waxed poetic about the oneness of the hearts of all mankind, the ceasing of all our sad divisions, I suspect that if he could see a coexist bumper sticker today, he would die a second death. True world peace could never be the product of accepting the terms offered by every possible world religion as equally valid. could never come that way. Rather, true world peace on earth is only possible by accepting the terms of amnesty laid down by the king himself. And he invites everyone to come. Remember, he's the T in coexist. The one in last place on the bumper sticker. That bumper sticker is a parable of divine providence if there ever was one. For Jesus himself said, the last shall be first. Hmm. At Christmas, we celebrate the coming of Christ. The superior pleasure to all the earth's treasure. At Christmas, we celebrate the coming of Christ. The superior pleasure to all the earth's treasure. Follow along with me as I read from Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. Haggai 2, 1 to 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, And to all the remnant of the people and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be 
Strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Haggai chapter 2 is, among other things, a strong word of encouragement from the Lord to his ancient people to set their hearts to the work of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem after their exile is over. Verse 4, with immediate application to the Jews in this text, though a promise that belongs to anyone who's in Christ today. Verse 4, work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. He's seeking to embolden and strengthen his people's hand through his spirit as they pursue the task of erecting a second temple from the rubble of the time of exile. And yet, as happens often in the prophets, by the time that we reach verse 6, it seems that something possibly deeper and longer is going on. Verse 6, we begin to see this text take on a future end time prophecy flavor very much so we read in verse 6 for thus says the lord of hosts yet once more in a little while i will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land if you've listened to handel's messiah yet over this season you've heard those words i will shake the heavens and the earth the sea and the dry land it's a reference to the final wind-up of human history That wind-up is described in Revelation chapters 6 to 19, much of it dealing with the future tribulation, the shaking of the heavens and the earth. And then comes our verse, verse 7. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now, the King James Version reads... The desire of all nations shall come, which has frequently been interpreted down through the centuries as a, as a messianic title. Exhibit A would be the final hymn of our, or the final verse of our hymn this morning, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Without going into unnecessary detail, I'll just say, I think that the modern versions like the ESV and lots of other modern versions get it, get it right. They have the drop on the KJV in this one. Verse 7 is not an explicit messianic reference to Christ as the desire of nations. However, it's in some ways even better. It's an explicit prophecy that one day the nations will stream to Jerusalem. 
to the temple even. I take that to be in the millennium, during the reign of the Messiah in the future. The point of verse 7 is that the nations will bring their treasures in and lay them at the feet of the Lord. And the context protects us in this. The, this verse 8 is explicit. The, the silver is mine. The gold is mine, says the Lord. And the nations are going to come. And they're going to bring their tribute with them. Now here's the connection with Christmas. Who's the king of Israel? Jesus. Jesus is the king of Israel. So while Haggai 2.7 may not contain an explicit prophetic title about Christ as the desire of nations, this verse does imply that something greater than the treasures of the nations is here. And that's Jesus. At Christmas, we celebrate the coming of Christ, the superior pleasure to all the earth's treasure. Now, here's what's so powerful about this text. Properly understood, it answers that coexist bumper sticker with a thundering authority. The nations of our world today, ours included, by and large, do not worship Jesus. Israel's promised Messiah is not the desire of nations right now. Seven billion people across the globe today, yet so few of them worship Jesus. How's God going to do this? Verse 7 furnishes the answer. God will shake them. Haggai 2.7 says, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all the nations come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. God will shake all nations. The Great Commission is going to work. It's going to happen. John Calvin comments, God will arrest the attention of all mortals as to turn them according to his will in any way it may please him. Come, he says, shall all nations. How? Because I will shake them. Calvin says, here again, the prophet teaches us that men come not to Christ except through the wonderful agency of God. We indeed know how great is our perverseness and how untamable we are until God subdues us by his spirit. There is need in such case of violent shaking. Now listen to Calvin, who often is accused of sort of overplaying God's sovereignty in matters like this. Listen to this. But we are not forced to obey Christ. We are not so shaken, but we are shaken so that our disposition is changed and we willingly receive the yoke of Christ. Amen. He's describing the new birth. He's describing a change in affections. He's describing repentance and faith. We talk about giving our lives to Christ, but we might as well just say, say the other way around. Christ shook me 17 and a half years ago in Columbia, Missouri. He shook me, and he's been my treasure ever since. This rattling awake of sinners to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, it's nice to have that ally with you when you go into Christmas dinner this week, isn't it? This text is explicit. 
How many nations will bring their treasures? All. All nations. All of them. Every ethno-linguistic people group on the planet. All 16,000 of them. Perhaps you know the old Sunday school song, Jesus Loves the Little Children. All the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white. All the peoples. That S is real important. Peoples are precious in Christ's sight. From creation to consummation, this is the unbending testimony of the Holy Scriptures. That's point number one. From creation to consummation, this is the unbending testimony of the Holy Scriptures. I know we're only getting to point one, but we are halfway done with the sermon. Okay. Hang in there. God will one day shake all nations. Why? Because he will not be stopped from blessing them. The Lord said to Abram in Genesis 12, 3, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 17, verses 4 to 6, we read of the everlasting covenant that God made with this man, Abram, and his people. Not only with his people, but through him all peoples. Genesis 17, 4-6 says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I shall make you exceedingly fruitful, and I shall make you into nations. Kings shall come from you. One of the strongest affirmations in the entire Old Testament of God's hard beating heart for the nations is found in the prophet Malachi in Malachi chapter 1 verses 11 and 14 we read for from the rising of the sun to its setting my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, for I am a great king. I remember Willem van Gemeren 15 years ago in an Old Testament class saying, God is a great king. I'd never heard such things. He is a great king. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So not only in the, the books of Moses, and not only in the prophets, but also in the Psalms. Clear across the Psalter, the songs of the ancient Jews, the songbook of the Jews, and the prayer book of the church. There is a chord struck for the concern of the fame of God's name among all the peoples, all the peoples of the earth. Maybe some of the clearest evidence of this would be found in Psalm 67. Psalm 67, by the way, was the very text that I preached the Sunday that we commissioned the Stout family for Macedonia in May of 2006. Psalm 67 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth. Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. 
Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the nations with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. That struck me as the right text for their commissioning because I couldn't think of a family more blessed than the Stout family. And rather than consuming that upon themselves, they wanted to lay that blessing out for the nations. And they have for the last 10 years. And friends, that's just the Old Testament. That's just the first five, six of our Bible. Through the Gospels and Acts and the Epistles and Revelation, we see the same chord struck. Just a few texts along these lines. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 14, that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world and then the end will come. And of course, the Great Commission itself makes manifest reference to the nations. Matthew 24, 14 speaks of the gospel of the kingdom as a testimony to all the nations, but now we have the authorization from Jesus in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Paul's epistle to the Romans. Um, in some ways, maybe the single greatest explanation and exposition of the gospel in the Bible. Uh, Paul refuses to bury his lead. <laughs> in many ways, Romans is a support-raising letter. It, it's a missionary letter. In Romans 1, 5, Paul explains in no uncertain terms that he and his fellow apostles received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name among all the nations, among all the peoples. Finally, in the book of Revelation, the apostle John writes with a fervent passion about the nations. The term nations appears no less than 23 times in the book of Revelation. There's only 22 chapters in the book. That's more than one reference per chapter. We could stay here a long time outlining all of these. Allow me just to provide a taste of how the book ends. Revelation 20, verse 3, we read that in the millennial kingdom to come, Satan will be bound for a thousand years that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended. And then in, in Revelation 21, 24, we get a description of new heaven and new earth with language that strongly echoes today's sermon text from Haggai 2.7. Revelation 21, 24, and 26, God's word says that by the lamp that is the lamb of God, by its light will all the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. They will bring into it the honor and fame of the nations. Lastly, the final reference to the nations in the Bible is Revelation 22.2. Revelation 22.2 speaks of the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, the New Jerusalem. And on either side of the river, 
the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And don't miss it. The Apostle John says the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. It's one of the most beautiful statements in all of Scripture. The leaves of the tree of life in New Jerusalem are for the healing of the nations. Red and yellow, black and white, all the peoples are precious in Christ's sight. Makes the coexist bumper sticker ring awfully hollow, doesn't it? From creation to consummation, this is the unbending testimony of the Holy Scriptures. Now we're not done because we need to apply the message. At Christmas we celebrate the coming of Christ, the superior pleasure to all the earth's treasure. Jesus, in this sense, is the desire of nations. Even if they don't know it yet. And they must know it if they're going to get there. Jesus is the Savior to the end of the earth. Red and yellow, black and white, all the peoples are precious in Christ's sight from creation to consummation. This is the unbending testimony of the Holy Scriptures. So, let us love and live these truths both locally and globally. Locally and globally. Jesus is the desire of nations. He's the Savior to the end of the earth. So let us love and live these truths both locally and globally. Okay, just how do we do that? Well, the first stop in loving and living these truths is learning where we are with reference to their geography. Jesus says in Acts 1.8 to 11 disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost, and to the end of the earth, the uttermost parts of the earth. And after a reading a text like that, it is not uncommon for American Christians to cast themselves into the role of the you. They love doing this. Namely, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. The effect being that we spiritualize these real places and the meaning of these places to represent symbols. Our Jerusalem being mound. Our Judea being the broader West Metro. Our Samaria, perhaps North Minneapolis or the Somalis population, wherever you think it would be hard. And then the end, all of a sudden we get face value. The end of the earth is, is literal. Well, I'm thankful that when our brother Brian Stout preached this text last month, that is not what he did with this text. Brian knows better. These four places are not four concentric circles of symbolic mission for Christians in Mound or wherever. No. The message of the gospel hit Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria in Acts chapters 2 and 8. A long time ago. In Acts chapter 2, verse 14, the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle Peter, preaches on Pentecost. Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this word be known to you. Give ear to my words. Then he says, the promise is, is for you and for your children and all who are far off, 
everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with these and many other words, he exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And those who received his word were baptized, and there were added, how many people that day? 3,000. Good jump start in Jerusalem and Judea. We move on to Samaria in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, Saul approves of the execution of Stephen. And then in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we read that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Church is already in Jerusalem. Gangbusters in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and where else? Samaria. Except the apostles. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. And the crowds with one attention paid attention to him. And there was much joy in that city. Verse 25, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Here we are in Mound, Minnesota, 2,000 years and 6,000 miles later. Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome to the uttermost parts of the earth. What an offense to the church in Jerusalem and to those who gave their lives that we are somehow Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria. No, there are levels of outreach that we need to consider thoughtfully as we apply this message. What's our goal here? Our goal here is evangelizing. Evangelizing here at home. That's Roman numeral one. Three levels of outreach to the end of the earth. Evangelizing here at home. Now, the souls of men and women are no less precious here in America than in Asia, I grant that, or the Middle East or North Africa. A lost person is a lost person no matter where they live. But here in America... People have what so many lost people throughout the world don't. And that would be access. Access to the gospel. Thousands upon thousands of gospel-centered, Bible-believing, evangelical churches that canvas this nation, north to south, east to west. Scores of English Bible translations. We have an embarrassment of riches as it relates to theological education and financial ability. Christian bookstores, Christian radio. I'm not suggesting all Americans are saved. Most Americans aren't. I'd say south of 15% of Americans are born again. That might be generous. But that still means about 40 million Christ followers in this nation. 40 million Christ followers that can get on their knees, move their feet, and open their mouths. Colossians 2, Colossians 4, 2 to 6. Prayer, care, share. That's the work of evangelizing here at home. We do have a unique wrinkle uh, here in the cities with the Somali population. As far as I know, not one indigenous church yet here in the cities. That's an unreached people group. Half an hour away or, f or fewer. 
but evangelizing here at home. Here from the ends of the earth, evangelizing. Second, strengthening the church abroad. Strengthening the church abroad. In the book of Acts, the verb strengthen appears five separate times. And each time it does so, it's describing the missionary work of the established church to strengthen the hands of newly planted churches in places where the gospel has not yet taken a significant hold. So, for example, strengthening the church abroad, Acts 14, starting in 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city that is Derbe, uh, they had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Why would you go back? To strengthen the souls of the disciples. Encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Or Acts 15, 32, starting in verse 30, we read, So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. Having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And and Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. After they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent him, but Paul and Barnabas remained for a while. And then we go on to hear of the, the strengthening of uh, the churches that uh, Paul and Barnabas, or Paul and Silas did in uh, verse 41, Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. In Acts 16, we learn that Paul comes back to Derbe and he chooses Timothy to be his apostolic associate. And the net result of that is that the gospel is preached even more strongly. And verse 5, the churches were strengthened in the faith. They increased in numbers daily. Timothy had grown up in a Christian home, at least with a Christian mother and grandmother, long enough that the gospel had taken root. They needed strengthening. Acts 18, finally, verse 23. When Paul had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all of the disciples. You could read the same thing in Romans 1. Romans 1.11, strengthening the church abroad. That's what's happening in the six families that we have the privilege to partner in global missions with. Strengthening the church abroad. So three ways that you and I can participate in this second level of outreach. First, sending long-term missionaries to work with nationals in the strengthening of their churches. Sending them and and praying for them, providing finances and providing training that we do and that we will continue to do. Second, partnering or rather participating in short-term missions yourself to assist our workers overseas in strengthening the hand of nationals. Some of you have done that and some of you who will continue to. I encourage that. Short-term missions is a wonderful way to get a sense of the, um, the work of God in strengthening the church abroad. And then finally, consider that God may be calling you, not the family next to you, but you to strengthen the church abroad, to go and not just send and become a goer, strengthening the church abroad yourself. So three levels of outreach to the end of the earth. First, evangelizing here at home. Second, strengthening the church abroad. Finally, and we're done, pioneering among the unreached and unengaged. Pioneering among the unreached and unengaged. Once again, 
there are 16,000 ethno-linguistic people groups. That would be cultural and language groups that as they come together represent a distinct uh, area of influence where the gospel can run with freedom and influence a particular people. There's 16,000 of those on this planet. More than half, roughly 9,000, don't even have level one access to the gospel or level two access to the gospel. Fledgling churches that are weak but need to be strengthened in their hand. No, 9,000 people groups today across this planet simply have no access to the gospel. That's half the population of our planet. That's 3.5 billion people who have never heard Jesus' name. Unreached, unengaged. Jesus is the desire of nations. But how can they desire him to whom they have no access? How can they bring their treasures to the feet of the true treasure unless we tell them about him? And so I want to commend to you the possibility that in our 2020 vision over the last four years that we intend to put a full court press on the unreached and unengaged in this church. And we, I think, have good reason to do so. Finishing with the words of the Apostle Paul here. How would Paul do in America? Would Paul feel constricted or cramped doing his Christ following here in this nation? I think he would. Romans 15, 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Imagine him saying that 2,000 years ago. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, and he has a text, as it is written. Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Wouldn't that be spectacular that our church could be a part of that? Pioneering among the unreached and unengaged. Strengthening the hand of the church abroad? Amen. Let's hold the rope for the six families that have gone down into the darkness and do that work. And may we, may we be Missionary centers with integrity here. We serve what's in our cupboard. What we grow in the fields is what we load on the trucks. We can only export what we manufacture here at home. So let's be evangelists here in our sphere of influence. Well, at Christmas, we celebrate the coming of Christ, the superior pleasure to all the earth's treasure. Red and yellow, black and white, all the peoples are precious in Christ's sight. From creation to consummation. This is the unbending testimony of the Holy Scriptures. So let's love and live these truths locally and globally. Jesus Christ, properly understood, really is the desire of all nations. I'm happy to report that, despite the translation differences in Haggai 2.7. Therefore, as a church, we are doggedly committed over the long haul to evangelizing here at home, strengthening the church abroad, and pioneering among the unreached and unengaged. This Thursday is Christmas Eve. We plan to gather here in the sanctuary at 4 p.m. We hope that you can make it. Understand if you're going to be on the road and blessings to you as you travel if that's the case. But we will be celebrating the birth of King Jesus 
4 p.m. in this place with one last Advent sermon series message as well as a full hour of singing. The final sermon uh, will spring off of the first verse of this hymn that's been looming now for some weeks, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We're going to consider the wonderful words of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 7, verse 14, Jesus is Emmanuel.